Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trusts Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, in addition to reviewing the week's most important news and announcements from the investment trust sector, I'm joined to discuss the alternative assets space, which is what's going on and what we've learned this week there, by Colette Ord, Head of Real Assets Research at Numis Securities, who covers uh, infrastructure and renewable energy trusts, and then to catch up with the latest property trust announcements with her colleague, Andrew Rees, whom I last spoke to a month ago. As I mentioned last week, uh, for the next two weeks, we'll be switching attention from the UK back to the global equity markets when I will be joined by Simon Barnard, the manager of Smithson, the uh, popular global smaller companies investment trust run by Terry Smith's Fundsmith Group. And beyond that, uh, Simon Edelston, the lead manager of Midwind International. And then uh, later on again, Bruce Stout, who manages Murray International. Let's see if they can make any more sense of the rousing equity market rally we've been experiencing since the autumn than our more recent uh, contributors. After the excitement of last week with its uh, blizzard of central bank interest rate decisions and some uh, surprising economic data, it was back to more normal markets this week. Equity markets are broadly flat over the week, ending marginally up in the UK and China and marginally down a bit in Japan, the US and Europe. It's still been a surprisingly strong start to the year for the equities, as uh, I've already mentioned, with market historians breathlessly describing the Nasdaq having its strongest start to a year since 1991. But that, of course, comes after a huge double-digit decline last year. Meanwhile, bond yields edged slightly higher across the whole maturity spectrum, up around 15 basis points in the US market, and twice that, just north of 30 basis points for the 10-year gilt, and so reversing some of the sharp declines of the central bank announcement week. Oil prices were also up by a notable $6 a barrel this week, so something to watch there. It was a relatively quiet week for news in the investment trust sector too, although the investment trust index, which tracks the performance of the 190-odd trusts that are in the FTSE All Share Index, was down as average discounts widened by around 1%. Turning to results, the week was notable for the completion of the first significant placing of the year. 3i Infrastructure, ticker 3IN, announced that it raised 100 million from a placing at 330p, a price that represents a small discount to its last published NAV, which was at 30th September last year. As I discussed with Colette Ord later, it's unusual for a trust to attempt to raise money with such a, quote, stale NAV, one that in this case dates back more than four months. Uh, but it was at least a positive outcome, albeit the sum raised, 100 million, is relatively trivial in the context of 3IN's near three billion pound market capitalization. Elsewhere, we heard that uh, Cordiant Digital, ticker CORD, Cord, is planning a 20 million pound share buyback program, following the lead of Aquila European Renewals Trust, AREI, which announced a 30 million euro buyback plan the week before. This is the first time that we've seen buybacks announced in the renewables sector, something else we discuss in a moment. On the results front, we've had annual results announcements from Saints, the Scottish American Investment Trust, ticker SAIN, a global equity income trust which is managed by James Dow and colleagues at Bailey Gifford, but has a very different approach to all the other listed Bailey Gifford investment trusts. It delivered a credible minus 3.7% NAV total return, a little better than its global benchmark's 7.3% loss for the year to 31st of December. The dividend is being increased by a healthy 9% and remains 100% covered by earnings and 80% by reserves. Uh, mind you, Saints is one of the AIC's 17 dividend heroes, trusts that have increased their dividend every year for more than 20 years, and in this case it's actually 49 years, so a dividend cut would definitely be news. The yield, however, it's fair to note, is only 2.6% and the lowest in its sector. More surprisingly, perhaps, the dividend is also going up by 5.7% at Throgmorton, ticker THRG, which is managed by Dan Whitestone of BlackRock. Despite the trust being hammered along with other small and mid-cap funds last year, its NAV total return of minus 31% being well below the 70% total return from its small company and AIM benchmark. 
The manager reported that it was a poor year for the kind of smaller gross shares that he favours. You can say that again. But added that it was the derating of both small cap and the style shift away from growth that did the damage, as the companies in the portfolio performed reasonably well operationally without profit warnings, for example. There are also interim results in an unchanged dividend from JP Morgan Midcap, which ground out a small positive NAV total return of 3% in the second half of last year, in line with the Orsha index, underlying how most of the damage in the small and mid-cap area was done in the first nine months of the year. Both uh, Throgmorton and JPM Midcap have been buying back shares, the former with more success in terms of the discount. This discount coming in from a peak of 14% last summer to around 2% this week, while the latter seems stuck a little south of 10%. There are also more NAV updates from Property and Renewable Energy Trust, discussed later in the podcast, and also from Syncona, ticker SYNC, the Healthcare Trust, which reported a NAV total return of minus 5.1%. As always, a full list of announcements and a summary of all the most important news announcements can be found for subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle on the Moneymakers website, together with the week's biggest share price NAV and discount movements. This week's profile features Urban Logistics REIT, ticker SHED, the most highly rated of the industrial property companies, which have felt the brunt of the sharp repricing and NAV declines amongst commercial and specialist property trusts since the middle of last year. As a bonus offering this week, I'm also summarising a helpful in-depth conversation I had this week with Hugh Yarrow, who is manager of the Evanlode Income Fund. That is an open-ended fund, not an investment trust, to be clear. But I follow it because it's a fund that I've long owned and admired myself. It's the most consistently steady performer in its UK fund peer group. And because uh, Hugh has lots of things of interest to say about the UK market and the outlook for the kind of high quality UK listed but global companies he invests in. The approach and his track record is similar in many ways to that of Nick Train, manager of Finsbury Growth and Income, with an annualised compound total return of 10% over the last 10 years which is comfortably ahead of the FTSE All Share Index and its peer group. I hope you might find something of interest there. Now, back to the alternative sector. So this week, I was able to catch up with Colette Ord, who is the head of real asset research at Numis Securities, uh, with particular reference to infrastructure and renewable energy. And I thought it'd be a good week to talk to her and to her colleague, Andrew Reese about property trust, because we've seen... So far this year, or indeed over the last three, four months, we've seen a very strong move in the equity markets. But uh, the alternative asset sector, including infrastructure and renewables, continue to be influenced by what's happening to bond yields and energy prices and other macro factors. So I thought it'd be useful to compare the different experience of these various sectors. Colette, first of all, how has the year so far gone in terms of the trust that you're looking after, the infrastructure and the uh, renewable energy ones? I mean, at the start of the year, obviously, we've seen following from the end of last year, which was some significant volatility across listed infrastructure. There's been an element of recovery from the market lows that we've seen that were sort of evident in Q4 last year. But there are definitely still companies which are trading on discounts, discounts that we don't think are uh, reflective of the financial performance or return outlook of some of the businesses. And so it's clear that the investor base is cautious about the asset class and is just waiting to see how the outlook compares with other forms of alternative income sources and, and in a rising rate environment uh, and just seeing where some of the key macro data points settle down. But we have actually seen uh, this morning the result of the first share issuance in infrastructure. So there is investor money still going into the sector and that's in one sense a positive. So I think the year has started on a reasonably positive note, but Notwithstanding that fact, there is still, we think, quite a broad opportunity set for investors, given current share prices are still relatively low compared to historic levels. So we'll come back to the fundraising in a moment, because as you say, that's a, a notable event this week. We saw a successful placing by 3i infrastructure. We'll come back and talk about that in a moment. But of course, alternative assets generally, and infrastructure in particular, is sold as primarily an income play. The majority of the expected return comes from dividend yields. And, and so therefore, as you say, one of the most relevant factors is what are competing assets offering by way of yield. And we've seen, obviously, gilt yields and global bond yields 
in developed markets at least go up a lot uh, at the end of last year. Now they've come back, actually not quite a long way, in fact. We've got gilts back to around 3% or just over 3%. What sort of level do you think that uh, investors are, are pricing in? Because we can measure that by looking at the spreads between gilt yields and, and the kind of yields we're getting on uh, infrastructure trusts. What are your thoughts on that uh, particular subject? Yes, yeah, so I think an important thing to remember in the context of infrastructure and comparing it directly with bond yields is, of course, you know, the total element return. Obviously, we comparing yields, we still think actually across a number of the investment trusts in infrastructure, you can still achieve a very attractive yield of between 5 and 7% in many cases. And so we think that's still competitive with other sources of yield. But obviously, you're also looking at the potential for, for capital growth. So the total return outlook, we think, is still you know the right way to look at things. And in terms of how we think about those returns and, and whether the risk, the additional risk for those returns is being priced, we tend to look at the discount rates and the headroom or the implied headroom over the relevant bond yield uh, for those particular portfolios. And we still think, certainly compared to other asset classes like real estate, where margins are typically thinner, the implied risk premium over relevant gilts across the infrastructure universe is still quite wide. It's sort of 350 basis points on average for your very low-risk core infrastructure, so your government-backed income streams with inflation linkage and income growth via that metric. For renewable trusts, it's in excess of 420 basis points or more, depending on the geography. And for mid-market infrastructure, which is typically the least bond-like kind of investment you would take exposure to in infrastructure, then the margins are even greater at, you know, five, 600 basis points implied premium over, over bond yield. So, you know, it's worth saying that we think that is still a comfortable position, a comfortable amount of premium over risk-free. And as I say, the total return potential we still think is, is pretty positive across the peer group. So before we delve a bit more into that, um, you did some interesting work recently. I mean, you looked at actually the performance of infrastructure over the last what, 10, 15 years since the first ones appeared just before the global financial crisis. And as you say, most of them have a target between sort of 7 and 10%, broadly speaking. And uh, they've delivered on that, have they not? They've actually, in most cases, exceeded those returns. And that's both on a NAV total return basis, so net asset value plus dividends, but also on a share price total return basis. And that, of course, is is the performance that shareholders can access. And so they've been well in excess of 10% on average. And if you've owned all of those stocks for that entire period of time since IPO, and of course, there are very different vintages across the sector. But if you've owned a broad basket of those listed infrastructure businesses, you've received annualised returns in both share price and, and NAV total returns in excess of 10% per annum. And I think, again, that's a reasonable return and it's been underpinned by income. And that, I think, looking forward is still achievable, perhaps a little better in certain strategies. I mean, of course, 7 to 10%, we've, we've got used to talking about all these target returns in nominal terms because inflation has been so low, consistently low and well within the target of 2% of central banks used to have back in the good old days. But of course, if inflation turns out to be higher for longer, if you like, in other words, we don't go back to a 2% world inflation, is it realistic to expect that these alternative asset trusts can continue to maintain that margin because to some extent they're inflation proof? Yeah, I mean, we've talked about, as you say, nominal premiums over nominal gilts. That Obviously, that premium is even wider when we compare it to index-linked equivalents in bond yields. So there are different varying types of inflation exposure. Positive correlation is a general theme for all of the infrastructure trusts. You know, there are big differences in subsectors. So battery storage would be very much at the low end of contractual inflation correlation and core infrastructure would be at the, at the high end and renewables somewhere in the middle and mid-market somewhere in between as well. So I think the outlook of inflation remains high or higher than target returns. You know, that is a positive generally for returns in the sector. But again, it's worth reminding ourselves that in low inflationary environments, these portfolios were also delivering attractive returns because there is an element of active management here as well. It's not just about market moves in the in the bond market. That's a key consideration of valuation, of course. But, you know, these are active strategies in most cases. So there is always scope for managers to improve returns from their own skill set. 
So let's talk about this fundraising then. I mean, we know last year was a relative desert for fundraising, though not no IPOs at all and very difficult in equity markets. But there was uh, some funding in the first half of the year, secondary issuance, by renewables and infrastructure trusts. But we have had this um, first successful placing of the year, 3i infrastructure. Perhaps you could tell us, first of all, the outcome of that uh, placing and how that measures up against expectations. Yeah, I mean, I think generally in this current environment where there are lots of different investment trusts, infrastructure in particular as well, trading below net asset value, which in itself is an unusual event to happen on a wide scale. So I think that being able to raise capital in that environment is is a challenge. And so a positive outcome in, in the form of £100 million, it is that, it is positive. But clearly from 3i Infrastructure's perspective, I think it would have been a much more comfortable position for them to have had a higher result. And of course, their drawn balance, which is often what prompts the issuance by the listed infrastructure funds, is they look to draw down on their revolving credit facilities to a certain degree before raising equity to repay that down and then freeing that up for further opportunities. And in this instance, 3i infrastructure is £555 million drawn. And so the £100 million obviously will come off that balance. But we also know that they have other opportunities to raise additional funds from the existing portfolio. They are looking to sell an asset at the moment. So I think the outcome was possibly lower than you would have normally expected. And clearly, they had a stellar result at the last capital raise, but that was back in 2009, you know, when the shares were, were issued at a sort of close to a 19% premium at that point. And, you know, so the world has changed a lot. So I think everybody was looking at the outcome of this capital raise as an indication of sentiment towards allocating to the sector. And I think what we've seen here is probably existing shareholders support the raise, existing shareholders having the greatest confidence in management team. You know, they've delivered a stellar return out come for shareholders since IPO and a very strong track record. So I think the absolute number probably feels lower than you would want it to have been given the 555 million drawn position, but it's by no means a disaster. And I think actually being able to place shares in this environment, we also see the positives in that as well. So hard to draw a conclusive verdict then from that. I mean, one of the interesting features of this is that they did raise this money at a price of 330p. This is, as I said, 3i infrastructure, ticker 3i-N. Um, and that was based on what we call a stale NAV. In other words, they didn't provide a live NAV or what they estimate the live NAV is. Uh, this is based on the NAV at the uh, end of September. First of all, that is unusual, is it not, to do, try and do that? It's a challenging one for the infrastructure sector in general, and and this particular portfolio is valued on a semi-annual basis. And it is very different to, say, a core portfolio where you do have fewer moving parts potentially to the valuation and it's less business plan centric. So I have some sympathy with 3IM structure in not publishing an updated nav, but I also see where people can raise the criticism that we would always want the nearest possible NAV to price the shares from. And, you know, as you say, priced off the September NAV, we're at the beginning of February now, and they'll do their next portfolio valuation at the end of March. But I think, you know, the management team clearly felt that the opportunity set for all shareholders was strong enough to do so. And that's clearly what the board decided also. You know, it's obviously a lot easier for an equity business or a business with much more liquid, less process driven formulaic sort of valuation approaches compared to this one. Presumably, they probably have an idea about what the NAV is likely to be at the end of March, at least sort of back of the envelope type estimate. Well, we have an estimate. Whether they would claim to have an estimate is a different story. We, we have an estimate, which was around about £3.33. So, so the issue price of 3.30 was a fraction shy of of our estimate, but that is our estimate, not their NAV. So it is a challenge that will have been put to management, but you know, they clearly think that the share issuance will be accretive over time to all shareholders. So it's a lesson that I think the sector will need to sort of learn going forward is that investors want more up-to-date NAVs where possible. And you know, also, they want to know where the money is going and the kind of accretion it might bring over time as well. They'll presumably they'll be well aware that uh, if they subsequently turns out the NAV was lower than that, they will be in for a rough ride from that. And There'll be plenty of commentary around that. Yeah, absolutely. And for just 100 million in the, in the context of a... Well, I say just at hundred million. That's, that's a <laughs> silly word to use, but in the context of the overall, you know, market cap. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so it's a relatively small proportion of their overall market cap, and also, you know, at a hundred million pounds, it is a lot less than five hundred and fifty-five million. You know, the other challenge that they have in 
taking the process forward the way they did is that they didn't quantify the amount of money that they were looking for. So investors do tend to want to know what the value of the capital raise is in totality. So they want to know how much the managers are looking for. Uh, and there are lots of those elements that were missing from this particular process. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure based on my current analysis, it's unlikely that my nav's going down from 3.33. So we'll see where it comes out. I guess the problem being that they, we're not going to hear that March 31st NAV for quite a long time. No, middle of May or, or early to mid-May is typically when we see the final results. So, and, and in fairness to the management team, a lot can happen to a business in that period of time. So, you know, there will be a, a strong defence that they would put forward to say that we can't possibly know all of those parameters that may or may not change between now and the 31st of March, which is the formal valuation date. And so, you know, a contract might fall over or a piece of equipment might cease working. There's all sorts of things that can happen. It would be their defence, I'm sure. So essentially, they've taken a bit of a risk here, I think it's fair to say, by what they've done. But it is a successful placing. We have to acknowledge that. Of course, we've also got the first IPO in the offing, or at least an attempted IPO in the offing in this sector. This is a company called AT85. They did try to do the IPO before Christmas and then postponed it. So uh, what do you think the prospects are for that one? Yeah, I mean, again, it is a challenging backdrop to get investors to allocate new capital to an asset class when established vehicles are trading at discounts to their NAS asset value. You're effectively paying for a premium for an untested management team in the listed market, that is. Of course, they have a track record in, in their field in the private market, which no doubt is very strong. But that is naturally a challenge to get investors to, to back a new team over an existing vehicle with a track record and a share price that might be offering value as well as an established income stream. So it's going to be challenging, I think. I think if we read across the outcome of 3i infrastructure, irrespective of whether we think it was the right issue price or not, it suggests that the raise was probably funded by existing shareholders, not new shareholders. Uh, otherwise, it would have potentially been a bigger raise. And that suggests to me that it's going to be challenging for 8085. Having said that, maybe they've got all of the new money for this offering. Maybe that's where it's all gone. We, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think generally as a rule, when the sector is trading on a discount with established businesses, it is always going to be a challenge to put a new IPO successfully closed. Is it an accident that it happens to be in what we call the mid-market sector, this one? No, I mean, the mid-market sector, I think it's an area where it's higher returns, it's less government subsidy or centric. And so, you know, it is a different kind of return. And certainly in this kind of higher rate environment, a higher returning vehicle, I would imagine, is more attractive to shareholders. So I think mid-market as a category of infrastructure definitely has a broad opportunity set potential to see more vehicles. There are a range of different kind of strategies. You can have a 3i infrastructure, which is diversified, or there are specialist strategies like digital, the two digital funds we would have in the same peer group. So I, th I think there is room for more vehicles, but I do think it's got to be something a little bit different. So I'm not surprised to see a mid-market offering at all, but I'm not sure whether it's particularly offering anything different to an established trust that is trading at or around NAV or below with a strong track record. And that's because they tend to be more economically sensitive, right, in the mid-market area. They can be. They don't have to be economically sensitive. It's more a sort of the nature of the covenant. In, in many cases, as I say, a lot of the core infrastructure that investors have been most familiar with, or even in renewable energy, there is a large government underpin to those cash flows, either in the form of subsidies or through, you know, PPP contracts or regulated assets. And so the mid-market category gives you exposure to different counterparties and it's higher returning for that reason. So I think a good balance is maybe an opportunity in that space that balances the two things people like most, which is an ability to control risk with a higher return. And that's, I guess, what everybody wants in a higher rate environment. The issue about funding for infrastructure is driven by the fact that most of the trusts have gone to a discount now, trading a discount, whereas before they were trading fairly consistently at a premium and therefore able to issue on a fairly regular basis. Are there any trusts in particular which look like they need the money more than others, in put that way, <laughs> and therefore they'll be very keen to get back to a, a premium or even take a risk of doing a, a stale NAV placing like 3AI infrastructure has done? 
Well, I think just in terms of how much money required in infrastructure, we roughly calculate about £2.4 billion of drawn balances at the moment across all of the stocks that we look at. That's across sort of 30 peers. So there's a, a broad spread there. There are clearly businesses that are more drawn than others. And, and something like Digital Nine is quite heavily drawn and paying quite a high price for its revolving credit facility. They're paying sort of three and a half percent or so. Then there are obviously the likes of things like Hickel, who interestingly pulled away from a committed investment to reduce its investment commitments, but they still will have a fairly notable drawn balance. You know, they've got roughly £241 million drawn and a commitment to another, I calculate, £356 million over the next six months. So that's over £500 million worth of drawn and future commitments to bring into the mix. And so that is definitely a consideration. But in terms of these funds, quite often the revolving credit facilities, we have been in periods of time uh, back in 2008-9 where we did see infrastructure funds retain a drawn balance for longer. There is typically the scope to extend these facilities. So we don't see any immediate pressure per se from banks to say, right, we want all our money back now. And therefore, we don't see distress in that sense. So there's a couple of options that the funds have. They can run with a balance for a little longer. You know, somebody like a Foresight or a Next have actually been running their RCF balances for quite some time. You know, for other vehicles, we've started to see things like syndications, 3i infrastructure themselves sold down some assets. They are, as I say, currently underway in a sales process for a tariff. So that will reduce their drawn balance. Hickel has been known to do that historically. So management teams have a number of options at their sort of hands to help them pay down. And, and one of the things we said in our real assets monitor is we do expect 2023 to see a more of a transaction flow. So more prints. So boards, I think, will be keen to show the value of their assets is robust. And we had somebody like Cordiant come out recently in their trading update to say just that. We believe our valuation is robust and uh, indeed conservative. They've initiated a small buyback program. They don't have any large drawings compared to the peer group. They do have available sources. So I think there's a, there's a whole range of potential disposals, which might be positive. There's always extensions of RCFs, excess cash flow. So renewable funds we know at the moment are, are running with quite strong cash flows. And that is something that can be used to pay down the sort of revolvers. Similarly, a lot of the infrastructure funds tend to have fully covered dividends ranging between sort of 1.1 up to two times in some cases. So there's options there for a number of funds, but there's no doubt that I think equity issuance would be something that I think boards and managers would want to undertake as part of the wider toolkit that they have of disposals and excess cash from, from the portfolios. Well, I take the point about proving your values by selling things, for example. But I guess there's another underlying assumption here, which is that there's an unlimited pool of projects that are going to make the kind of returns that they've made in the past. Maybe it'd be quite a good thing if there was a bit of rationalization in some of these portfolios, because in the past, when it was so easy to raise money, there must have been a risk that the uh, supply of really good potential uh, investments for these trusts might be quite finite. Yeah. And I think you've got to look at the capital discipline of the management teams across the space and, and who's been doing what over time. Because I think you're absolutely right. There is, you know, There was definitely a period of time where all funds could raise money for pretty much all things. And we have always advocated to investors that we speak to, to drill into the details, to understand the fundamentals of the new investments going in. And we know that there's been some very disciplined management teams. You know, there are examples of, say, renewable energy businesses where the peer group have been ferociously raising capital over a period of three years, and they have stepped back and not raised any money during that period between 2017 and 2020, when we saw the most significant amount of yield compression in the UK renewable segment. And there was a deliberate choice not to invest. And as a result, that business has delivered the strongest earnings in each and every period since 2013. So I think, again, investors will, I think, start to be more discerning around some of those businesses that have shown capital discipline, that, that are addressing things like capital allocation correctly, are addressing discounts where they may be helped by a different allocation of capital. As I say, rather unusually, we're seeing share buybacks rather than share issuance. I mean, that is unheard of in infrastructure. You know, the first fund to initiate a buyback recently was Aquila European Renewables. And 
accordion themselves just announced one. So things have shifted and investor expectations are different. And there will be, I think, a reward to those businesses that are listening to that and are prepared to use the toolkit to deliver the attractive returns and to maintain the faith of the investor base in what is otherwise, I think, still a pretty attractive sector with pretty unrivaled scarce assets with good levels of income that can't be replicated very easily. So there's definitely room for doing things better at different companies. And I think we will see some variation in ratings for that reason. Yes, of course. Well, heaven forfend that we should see uh, fund managers going headstrong into the business of asset gathering rather than worrying about the longer term returns that their <laughs> shareholders have. But that's what the boards are there for. You mentioned the Cordiant uh, share buyback. How much are they doing and what are they using to justify that? Because you say it's a it's a new departure for the sector in general. Yeah, I mean, they, they've obviously recognised that the discount is very wide. You know, prior to the announcement of the buyback, the shares were trading on a, a roughly an 18% discount to a historic NAV. So the NAV, uh, again, quite old there. They are semi-annual valuations. And I think they recognise that you know, the market needs to see the boards use, as I say, the toolkit that they have within their power to recognise that you know shareholders want to see an element of response to that. So it's a relatively small buyback in the context of the market cap of the fund. You know they said they'll buy up to twenty million. We don't really know the parameters. There's no specific parameters that I'm aware of. Nothing that was clear certainly on the call. But I think you know the shares have reacted positively to it. They're up five or six percent or so. Whether that's specifically just to do with the buyback or whether it's also to do with the fact that in their most recent recent trading update, which was a little earlier than usual. Read into that what you will. But they've been able to highlight their investment firepower position and talk about the performance of their underlying businesses, which of course has been strong in the context of revenue and EBITDA growth. So it's a 20 million number. It's quite small, but it, you know it's helped the share price move. Similarly, we saw Aquila announce one, again, a 20 million euro buyback which in the context of their market cap is slightly more significant. But again, it's about the board setting out very clearly, you know, at the same time, they also increase the dividend by 5%, which they have had a transformational period, six months period, uh, whereby their portfolio is completely operational. They've given forward guidance on the revenue outlook. They've been, been very clear about how strongly the dividend cover is, and therefore the earnings capacity is there to do these things. And I think that's what investors will want to see and will appreciate most. They want to understand the earnings capacity of these businesses, understand that the board are recognizing the opportunity set. And if you are trading on a significant discount, if that is part of a solution, along with things like progressive dividends, sustainable by strong earnings, and along with enhanced disclosure on performance, then that in both instances has had a positive impact on share prices in those particular companies. So dare I say it, they're going to have to work a little bit harder to, uh, to to command a good rating. I think so, and you know, disclosure is critical in infrastructure. It's it's a challenging sector for investors. You know, if you don't have the luxury like I do, sitting here all day long looking at it and comparing discount rates every time they change and every other lever that that goes into these DCF valuations, it can be difficult to try and really pull apart the really strong from from the less strong. So we're going to get some news flow this year, which I think helps to bring along the investor or remind the investor of, of the potential quality of returns that are still achievable in this space. So you've mentioned renewables. We haven't specifically addressed those. I think maybe when you were talking about companies that uh, were very restrained in chasing the market uh, between 2070 and 2020, I think you were probably referring to Bluefield Solar. Yeah, um, yeah, it is a regular point that they remind investors of. So yes, they they, <laughs> they oh, were. Well, that's good. Yeah, and rightly so for them to do it. You know, the, the capital discipline has been really important, along with the rest of their focus in the business around hedging and such, and that's what's allowed them to deliver the kind of earnings growth that they have. And it's one of the reasons they're one of the strongest performing stocks in the listed infrastructure sector, actually, including the renewables. But yeah, I mean, in, in terms of renewables, generally, we've had some news flow out. We've had some Q4 data. And I think what we'd set our, our thoughts out in the RAM, the Real Asset Monitor piece that we put out earlier in January, was we had expected, having seen big moves in NAVs in September and the impact of the energy generation levy, the EGL, come out, we, we hadn't expected NAVs to be up too much, down too much. There's one or two outliers as ever, Greencoat UK Wind being one of those. And we had expected them to deliver a stronger NAV than the peer group because they had not, in the same way that others had, uh, adjusted their assumptions for power prices in Q3 to the same degree as others. So we've seen a trend of lower power prices being offset by higher inflation, 
or higher discount rates being offset by higher inflation. So net-net, there's been broadly stable valuations in the space. And talking to participants in the market, you know, discount rates have moved. The majority of the peer groups that have had valuation points out since September have all seen their discount rates increase fairly notably between 50 and 100 plus basis points. And so, again, we think there's there's probably one or two stocks still got to move their discount rates higher, more to do with the timing of their valuation date than anything else. But um, we still think there are mitigants to things like lower power prices or higher discount rates across the pack, inflation being one of them, because they were still all generally below where market expectations are for things like inflation and things like deposit rates, you know, for things like core infrastructure assets, higher deposit rates in the model are actually a, a small positive for valuation. So there's lots of things within the valuation consideration that are positive as well as some of the negatives. So that's why you know in Q4, we, we've seen broadly flat NAVs across renewables as we'd sort of expected. So again, we've got a current data point to price the NAV from. We've got attractive yields of 6% or more very well covered because obviously elevated power prices, even after windfall tax, are filtering through to cash flows from this year into next year. So there's quite a few positives there, yet the sector overall, the renewable sector is still trading on average at a discount, having been at a premium. Um, And there's, again, quite wide diversion between the sectors. Perhaps you could just briefly comment on that. So we've got battery storage at one end, which is trading at a premium. And then at the other end, we've got uh, some of the energy efficiency transition trusts, which are trading on big discounts. And in between are the sort of mainstream uh, renewable trusts, which again, there's a wide range there as well. What's ultimately driving the the disparity there? Is it just the nature of the business in each case? Yeah, I mean, it's the point in the cycle, certainly in the case for storage, you know, energy storage. I think one of the challenges actually with the premium ratings and actually not every battery storage fund is is trading on a premium. The weighted average is skewed heavily by the biggest stock in the sector, which is Gresham House. Interestingly, they're the only one of the three peers covering a dividend fully from operating cash after paying costs. And I think, again, this is a sector that purports to offer seven pence dividends as a base or eight pence in the case of Harmony. So I think there's a lot still to prove for the less mature storage funds that have still got quite a lot of non-operational assets covering costs. So I would caution that investors got very excited about the kind of returns that were delivered last year because we saw such battery storage funds benefit from volatility in power markets. Renewable funds benefit from higher power prices, but storage benefits from volatility. And one thing we saw last year was unprecedented levels of volatility in every power market for all the reasons that have been well documented post the invasion of Ukraine. And so that enabled the businesses to deliver some very, very strong NAV returns. And share price returns in many instances did follow. And I'm just a little concerned that those levels of returns are unlikely, in my opinion, to be repeated. In fact, we saw Grid's Q3 statement, uh, you know, still positive, but we're seeing a couple of percent growth in NAV from the double digit growth in NAV that we saw in the first half of the year. So I think storage feels like it's in a, a turning point in a sort of, we all know we need more storage assets and therefore that should be positive for the funds, shouldn't it? And we agree. But we would also remind investors, obviously, the fundamentals of each of the portfolios are are quite different. And there is still some things to prove for one or two of those businesses. Renewables, you know, I think regulatory backdrop has been a concern. I think investors have been worried that the regulators or the interaction with governments has maybe taken away the potential upside they may have seen to be available in the sector. Ironically, it should also reduce the volatility of the sector in the context of their power price exposures. But I think once that works itself out and we continue to see those dividends, which, as I say, are at the high end of the scale, and you can get almost 7% from some stocks in this sector, then we'd hope for some of those share prices to see some recovery. And energy efficiency, it's a challenging segment. Investors like to have a clear description of what you've got in a portfolio, as clear as you can be. And this sector doesn't really lend itself to that. And so there's a lot of detail that management teams have to give about the risk-adjusted returns of these assets. And somebody like SDCL Energy Efficiency has been trying to deliver more and more transparency, but it's still quite a complex portfolio for investors to understand. And we go back to basics here. You know, they're looking to deliver returns of 7 to 8% in the case of SDCL. And that's not necessarily government-backed, and you don't have the same level of inflation correlation that you might get from a core fund, 
which is government backed and is offering you 7 to 8%. So I think there's just investors stepping back a little bit from some of the thematics that they were buying into and looking not just at the thematics, but also the return overlay. And there are two specific trusts, of course, within energy efficiency, which are trading on, on big discounts. And that's really reflecting their ability to deploy. And there's been obviously quite a drag on deployment for both the Triple Point and Tequila Energy Efficiency businesses, both of which have, have sort of reached that full deployment stage. But again, they're, they're going to suffer from being a very small trust in a challenging segment that is difficult for investors to comfortably add to their portfolios and be able to explain it. <laughs> so it's a challenging space efficiency. And I think more needs to be done by the managers to point out the robustness of cash flows and returns that they may be able to extract from those assets. Yes, I mean, the last two you mentioned are both, uh, I think they're under 100 million, aren't they, market cap? So that, that's pretty small. Yes, they are. They're very much later to the party in terms of issuance. They were some of the later vintages. Yeah. yeah. Finally, you want to just mention one other specific, which is Octopus Renewables, uh, O-R-I-T. They seem to have taken some people by surprise by having a fairly aggressive 10% dividend increase. How has that gone down in the market? I mean, you, is there a point at which the market starts to say, well, that's sort of too good to be true? Well, I think, you know, the challenge for Octopus in doing what they did, and, you know, I think optically it sounds great to say you've been able to increase your dividend in line with inflation, but actually that's not their dividend growth target. You know, there's only one stock that still maintains a dividend target to grow in line with inflation, and that's Greencoat UK Wind. And indeed, it increased its dividend by RPI, so an even greater amount by 13.4%. But I think what Octopus did with that increase, whilst its shares were trading at a fairly big discount to NAV, the discount is less now, but it's still a discount. And so I think for me, I would have been more comfortable with them putting through a, a smaller level of dividend growth and giving me better clarity on earnings capacity, because I think that's the challenge. Investors want to understand if we're going into a lower power price backdrop, if gas prices continue to, to fall, if you've committed to a dividend that's 10.5% higher than last year, that's a heavy hurdle or a high hurdle to meet each and every year and continue to grow progressively. So I think what they should have done in conjunction with that, and they did make the statement they expect the higher dividend to be covered by operating cash flow. But I think where other funds have gone further, and I think it's really important that all funds do this, where other funds have gone further is they've been very clear about the earnings capacity looking two, three, four, five years out, because that's really important, in my opinion, to be able to get investors to understand if the earnings capacity and the and the dividend yield and dividend growth potential is competitive with other sources of income. I believe it is in a handful of cases across the space. And those businesses that are able to display that, I think, will be rewarded in their rating or should be rewarded in their rating, in my view. It does appear to me that the lesson seems to be, obviously, we don't know quite what the macro drivers are going to be this year. But overall, the infrastructure sector still looks a good place to go if you're looking for income. But there's a lot of pressure on managers to be more forthcoming and by uh, extension underlines the need for investors to be uh, perhaps more discriminating as between different trusts than they have been in the past when everything went up, basically. Yep, I would agree with that. <laughs> Summarized it perfectly. <laughs> Splendid. Not often people say that to me. Thank you so much for your time, Colette, as always, and look forward to uh, having you on again soon. Thank you very much. So my next port of call this week was to Andrew Reese, who is the property analyst at Numis Securities, Colette's colleague. And we've had a whole spate of property trust results over the last two weeks. I think something like 10 last week and another four or five this week. So before we look at some of the detail of the individual trusts, Andrew, just tell us the general story coming out of the Q4 NAV updates that we've heard from the commercial property trust. Hi, Jonathan. Yes, thanks. I mean, I think the story that we've seen from the, the Q4 NAV updates has clearly been that repricing that has been taking place within the investment markets in Q4 last year that we've you know, seen the, the direct market data for with some pretty significant capital value declines. That is really starting to be quite clearly reflected in the Q4 NAV numbers that are being reported, you know, particularly by the diversified commercial funds. You know, we've seen that repricing um, be particularly significant for for industrial assets that, of course, have been the darling of the sector, um, so to speak, over the past couple of years, but have also seen the the most significant repricing over the last three months. 
But I think, pleasingly, from my perspective, actually, you know, you've almost seen this being preempted by the equity markets in terms of the the share price performance. And even though you know a lot of these diversified funds have reported quite significant fifteen, sometimes even twenty percent NAV declines you've actually seen share prices not respond really in the face of that. And I think that reflects that people were already anticipating these sorts of, of now falls in the quarter. And actually, it's kind of a reflection of, of what happened last year in terms of, of the repricing that, that's having to take place in response to that that rising interest rate and guilt yield environment that, that, that we've touched on previously on this podcast. Yes, it was the, the scale and the extent of the increase in interest rates and bond yields at the second half of last year that's led to this significant adjustment of capital values, as you say, but most of the derating was done last year rather than this year. So I'd like to talk through the names that are reported this week, and then we'll come back to talk about the outlook for the sector overall. And as you say, the pattern has been, well, Q4 NAV declines of anywhere between 10 and in some cases 25%. But let's just go through uh, the ones we've heard from this week. So let's kick off with the Balanced Commercial Property Trust, uh, ticker BCPT which I think reported an NAV decline of 15.1%. What can you tell us about that one? Yes, like you say, balanced commercial property had exposure to sort of all the main commercial real estate areas. And like you say there, NAV was down 15% or a kind of negative 14% total return for the quarter. And that was, like you say, driven by this, I think it was 11.9% like-for-like valuation decline for their assets in Q4. The most significant declines were for industrials for them and, and their retail warehouse assets. And actually, the important point to note, I guess, about balanced commercial property when compared to some of the other peers within that sector is it does have a more balanced portfolio in terms of a slightly less of a weighting to industrial assets. A lot of the peers have got 50, 55, 60% of their portfolio within industrial assets. Balanced commercial property, that's lower in the higher 30s, and it's got a more significant exposure to retail. Um, and principally, that is sort of central London retail, and it's in Christopher's Place, um, its flagship asset which is a mixed-use asset near Bond Street. And actually, that was the strongest performing asset for in, in the quarter uh, from a valuation perspective. You know, the, the value of that was broadly flat, and it's actually been their strongest performing asset in 2022 as a whole. And I think that potentially speaks to sort of a, the challenges that, that retail as a sector of commercial property has, has definitely had over the past few years, You know, potentially seeing a, a bottoming out in terms of both capital values, but also rental levels. And so it's interesting now as looking forward, balanced commercial property being that, that diversified proposition where you know, returns are potentially less differentiated across sector, is that actually an attractive place to be? Yes, indeed. Though it's interesting about St. Christopher's Place, obviously, it's just north of Oxford Street, as you say, near Bond Street in London. Mixed use. My wife was walking down Oxford Street yesterday and said it was pretty empty. But I think I heard the managers talk about this trust, and they were saying that they've been encouraged by signs of you know, higher footfall. And I guess they'll be hoping for that to continue. Perhaps just on one simple point, just clear up for us, if you would, why the figures for net asset values and like-for-like valuations diverge. Can you just explain to our listeners why these trusts report both those numbers and, and what the difference is between them? The like-for-like valuation move is essentially going to be driven by the underlying capital values of the portfolio. And so it's trying to strip out anything that you know might have um, disposals or acquisitions made during the quarter um, and also you know, CapEx investment. Whereas the NAV will also be impacted by these things as well as other potential accretive share buybacks. Um, or other things that might be going on in the trust. And obviously, in a falling capital values market where most of these trusts do have gearing, you know, balanced commercial properties, LTV is is just north of 20%. That gearing is going to exacerbate the capital value like-for-like declines in when it comes to the, the NAV quarterly moves. Yeah, so in general terms, when capital values are falling, then the NAV is going to fall further than the like-for-like valuation number. Yes. Okay, so let's move on then and talk about another interesting uh, property trust, one that I uh, know quite well, and that is Custodian. It's now called Custodian Property Income Trust, I think. It was just used to be called Custodian REITs, and they've produced some NAV numbers for the fourth quarter. What do they show? Yes, yeah, so Custodian's NAV was also down. Yeah, it reported a NAV total return of, of minus 11% for the quarter, so slightly more modest decline from them. And I think that reflects a couple of things. Firstly, Custodian, as I'm sure many of the listeners will be aware, is really differentiated through its small lot focus and the ability to generate a yield premium from acquiring these smaller lots that are typically in values of between two and, and 15 million pounds. And essentially, that is reflected in the 
portfolio net initial yield, which is now up to 6.5%, which is higher than the peer group. And that higher net initial yield and, and starting yield offers you a slight yield buffer in the current environment where you're seeing this, this outward yield shift in response to rising bond yields and, and debt costs is actually leading to that repricing. With a, with a starting higher yield, you are slightly insulated from that perspective. And so you're, you're seeing less significant capital value declines. Well, we'll come back and talk about yields again in a moment. So that was Custodian. They have a relatively higher proportion in industrials. Um, so they've done pretty well, despite that, as you say, the small lot size seems to be uh, compensating for that. Would, would that be a fair comment? Yes, I think that's a fair comment. And also, Custodian is a very actively managed portfolio, obviously, given its granularity. And actually, that industrial's exposure is still an area where the occupational markets still remain very robust. And so the management through their active initiatives are able to capture the the rental reversionary potential within those industrial assets um, to drive rental growth. And I think that serves to remind us that property at the end of the day is, is very much an income story when it comes to returns. And so you know, growing the, the top line there in, in terms of rents is incredibly important in providing that visibility of earnings and, and that fully covered dividend yield, which, which Custodian offers. So that's Custodian, uh, ticker C-R-E-I. And let's move on then and talk about LXI REIT, uh, ticker LXI, unsurprisingly. We've also um, heard something from them this week. Uh, they obviously had a big uh, merger last year with another property trust, and they've derated quite uh, significantly. But what have we heard from them this week? Yes, we had a brief trading update from LXI REIT. So they won't report December numbers. They report a six-monthly NAV. And so the next time we'll get a full portfolio revaluation and NAV from them will be following the, the 31st of March. But they provided a brief trading update this week, which essentially highlighted the portfolio they've got of those key operating assets that, that are diversified by sector and let on those long index leases are, are still performing as you would expect and delivering that rental growth, which is positive to see. Um, and as I mentioned, that's coming from the mixture of, of inflation linked rents and also fixed uplifts. You know, 53% of, of LXI's portfolio does have annual rent reviews. And so that is going to give you a strong visibility on that revenue growth that I touched on. And I think the other point to mention on LXI is they won't be completely immune from the repricing that we've touched on that, that's going to impact valuations when they next report at the 31st of March. But you know, the, the positive thing is that when they continue to deliver this rental growth, that, that will serve to offset and, and soften some of the impact of those capital value declines. I think LXI is one of the trusts, though, where there has been some concern about the fact that their debt is uh, rather more extensive than some other trusts, and they may have to do some refinancing. The debt they took on quite a lot when they did that uh, merger last year. So uh, what do you uh, think about that? Is that a serious uh, risk for them or for how investors regard the trust? No, you're absolutely right to mention that, Jonathan. I think we've seen LXI's shares this year, certainly in the first six weeks of the year, haven't necessarily seen you know the same positive moves that a lot of the listed property sector have seen. Your shares are broadly flat on the year, I think, and I think that does reflect some investor concern over the debt refinancing that that does remain a key priority for management. You know, probably have over seven hundred million facilities expiring over the next couple of years that they are looking to refinance. Certainly in the first quarter, maybe in the first half of this year, as a priority. I think the couple of points to mention are obviously, you know, given their size now following that merger, you know, there are more financing options available to them perhaps than there were previously. And I think the, you know, the other point to mention is the existing facilities that they have in place you know, weren't necessarily the cheapest, lowest cost facilities in, in the first place. And so actually the sort of incremental increase in finance costs that they will see as a result of refinancing um, in the current environment won't actually necessarily be too significant in our mind. And therefore, you know, the overall impact and, and erosion in terms of earnings won't necessarily perhaps be as marked as the market may be expecting. Um, and so you know, we still view LXI as, a, as an attractive proposition run by a really dynamic management team. But the other factor with LXI that I've seen mentioned is the fact that the manager, the dynamic management team you mentioned, they uh, come from a company called Alvirium. And Alvirium is also has been the manager of Home REIT, which has been obviously in the news for all the wrong reasons recently. Do you think there's an element of kind of contagion there if people just put two and two together and come up with five and say maybe there's a there's a problem there? Yes, I think that is definitely an element of, of why there's been some pressure on the shares, um, you know, particularly sort of in the, in the back end of, of last year following all those allegations that, that came to light when it, when it came to home REIT. I think from my mind, they are, or they kind of were two distinct management teams within Alvarium. And so, we didn't necessarily, not necessarily view that the 
management of LXI, you know, the, the team headed up by Simon Lee and John White, that we don't view them as sort of having stewardship over the home route team. And so, yes, yeah, it's obviously an un- uncomfortable situation that, that some people are viewing as a risk to LXI. And yeah, that's, that's potentially why you've seen some some selling of the shares. But I'd be cautious over yeah, potentially potentially making too much of that, given they are, like I said, two, two distinct management teams, albeit under the same Alvarium umbrella. That was LXI. We move on to talk about PRS REIT, ticker PRS, which is in a slightly different sector. This is a specialist in the uh, residential for rent sector. What have they had to say uh, this week? Well, yeah, so PRS REIT had the December NAV out this week, which was up marginally 0.6% in the second half of last year. And that actually followed the significant 11% NAV growth that they reported in, in the six months to the 30th of June. So what's driving this is really the strong ERV growth, so strong rental values growth across the portfolio, which are up another 5% since 30th of June. And that's serving to offset some modest yield softening moving out from 4.125% to 4.3%. And I think the, you know, the strong rental growth of that portfolio, you know, passing rents were, were up 5.7% on an annualized basis at, at 31 December, really speaks to the strong occupational dynamics within the, the PRS sector. Um, you know, we've seen a sharp rise in mortgage rates that's obviously been widely documented over the past 12 months. And that's really reducing the affordability of, of buying homes for many families. And so the result of that is you see increased demand for, for rental accommodation, which the likes of PRS REIT are providing. That really speaks to the key element of property in this in this sense, in terms of delivering growth in the current environment, is the occupational dynamics. And you know, if you have strong occupational demand combined with tight supply, there is a, a chronic undersupply of of this type of accommodation. Then that is that is going to be conducive to rental growth. And they're seeing that not just at kind of signing new leases with, with new tenants, but also at the renewal with existing tenants, they're still able to drive significant um, rental growth on, on previous passing rent. So it, it's definitely a positive occupational story from PRS REIT. There are some concerns over a refinancing, which they will have to do themselves. You know, they have a revolving credit facility, £150 million, albeit not fully drawn at the moment, but it's expiring this year. And they recently took out a five-month extension to that. So it was due to expire this month. They've extended that to July this year. But that will still need refinancing. Um, and obviously, you know, in the current environment of debt costs, that, that's potentially going to increase their finance costs. You know, they could look to potentially sell some assets to, to pay down that debt. But you know, obviously, having spent significant time constructing this portfolio of, of 5,500 homes, they're probably going to be unwilling and slightly reticent to, to sell homes at this point. So it'll be interesting to see what, what sort of costs they're able to achieve on their refinancing and, and how drawn they, they look to go on that, on that revolver going forward. Okay. And then finally, reporting this week, as opposed to last week, we had another NAV update, this time from uh, Civitas Social Housing. We've talked a lot about the problems in the social housing sector, but in terms of operational performance, how do the numbers from uh, Civitas, ticker CSH, uh, compare to the very different animals that we've been uh, talking about so far? Yeah, so I guess Civitas reported you know, modest NAV decline in the quarter to December, I guess, compared to the the wider diversified commercial funds that, that we touched on at the start. But, you know, I, I think the point uh, is probably worth remembering in terms of Civitas, and we, we obviously discussed the challenges faced by the, the specialist supported housing names in the current context. You know, the shares continue to trade on, on wide discounts, which I think reflects potentially a... Um, a lack of belief necessarily in the market in, in that NAV, despite it moving down in response to the, the rising yield environment, is you know, there's still significant regulatory concerns over these funds and, and the model. And you know, I think that's only increased given what we've seen with, with MySpace and, and the regulatory enforcement notice issued um, in regard to that housing association. You know, albeit it was a smaller position in terms of Civitas's rent roller at just over one percent compared to just north of, of seven percent for, for triple point social housing or Soho. But I think it potentially speaks to nervousness that the regulator is starting to show, show more teeth and what the possible impacts of that can be. You know, the, the funds have both you know, tried to help their tenants or that those housing associations move move towards regulatory compliance. But you know, it still remains the, the situation that a large proportion of, of Civitas's rent roll has received negative regulatory judgments. And I think, you know, to our mind, that there remains a, a risk that the model will have to, to change significantly for that to be corrected. Uh, the risk, if that happens, is that you do see rental levels potentially rebased to more sustainable levels, and you know potentially the, the impact of that is obviously 
significant valuation hits potentially. So I still don't think the concerns necessarily are, are going away in that, in that sector. So it looks like it's going to be a long haul for those trusts to overcome these issues that they're having to deal with. And that's, of course, reflected in the discounts. Let's talk about discounts across the sector, if we may. The interesting thing is that there's been this very substantial derating in the sector, but there's been a lot of divergence in there across the sector. Obviously, Civitas is a, the one extreme. I don't know what number you've got them on as a discount, but uh, it has been as wide as, what, 50% or so, 45%, 50%? Yeah, yeah, if not more. If not more, right. Well, it, it, it's come slightly tighter this week, given the, the NOV decline, but yeah, I think it touched about 55% prior to that. Yes. So, I mean, of the names we talked about, again, there's a, a wide range. I mean, custodian property income, that's on, uh, what, a relatively narrow discount, I suppose, <laughs> you could say. I don't know where you've got that, somewhere around, uh, what, 8 9%, something like that? Yeah, I've got I've got custodian on an eight nine percent discount. Yeah, that's correct. But the big balanced commercial property trust, the ones we talked about, including balanced commercial property trust, they're still on pretty wide discounts. So what's happening basically is the NAVs are coming down to meet the discounts. Is is that what's happening essentially? Yes, essentially in the near term, what we're seeing is those discounts narrowing is being driven by NAV declines rather than necessarily share price re-rating. I think sentiment towards the shares and, and the sector as a whole continues to be to be shaped by the macro backdrop and, and what's happening in terms of rates. But you know, I remain cautiously optimistic that, you know, as we start to get more clarity over you know, the monetary tightening cycle that we're in at the moment, potentially, you know, coming to an end in the middle of this year, if the bank has the confidence to stop increasing rates, then you know, that does provide an outlook where valuations will stabilise. And, you know, depending on the depth of a, of a recession that we're entering, you know, if it does prove to be a sort of short, shallow technical recession, then, you know, the outlook for commercial property is potentially quite positive. So, like you say, I think there are definitely opportunities out there at the moment, given the these wide discounts. You know, if you're still trading on a, on a 20 or 30% discount to a, a December NAV, as we see the likes of, of balanced commercial property are, you have to think that given the significant valuation hits that have been seen in, in Q4, that actually... A lot of the valuation pain has potentially already come through. Um, you know, we are still likely to see NAV declines in Q1 and potentially into Q2 this year. But if I think if we compare it to, to other crises, we're potentially hitting the bottom in terms of valuations far sooner than we have done in the past. Yes, I'm just looking down the table of yields now, the kind of yields that are on offer there. And well, with one or two exceptions, so if we average is about 6.3% for the kind of broader commercial property trusts. And in some cases, a little bit higher. And mostly, in general terms, those kind of yields are nearly covered by earnings in some cases and, and more than covered by earnings in other cases. So there's no real risk at the moment anyway to dividend yields uh, actually being payable. But the issue might be whether they can uh, increase them or not, I suppose. That would be the thinking, would it not? Yes. I mean, there are a couple of funds where I think the dividend yield is, is potentially unsustainable. and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a dividend cut. But if you look at funds like custodian income, where the dividend is well covered by earnings, given that core focus on on income and earnings as the fund delivers, then there is definitely scope for that return to be sustainable. Actually, you know, if you look at the likes of Schroeder Real Estate, so SREI, they actually increased their dividend this quarter. So there, there is scope if the occupational markets remain strong and funds are continuing to capture that through rental uplifts then there is definitely scope to potentially deliver some, some further rental growth and, and really protect that dividend yield, even if even if share prices do re-rate from here. Yes, because I mean, ultimately, commercial property is an income generating asset. And basically, that's why people like it. Finally, um, you know, we've seen gilt yields have come down again. They've come down quite a lot from the peak they had before Christmas. So they've, you know, we're down to something around 3% or a little bit over 3%. In terms of the kind of spread between the yields you're getting on, on these property trusts, uh, you know, 6% on average, what does that tell us in terms of historical experience about what that kind of yield gap is likely to be between uh, gilts and uh, and commercial property trust dividends? Yeah, so I think that's definitely been a key reason for the weakness last year was people looked to the gilt yields and what, what was happening there and naturally translate into what was going to happen in terms of property valuation yields. And we have seen those those widen, obviously, as we've touched on in terms of that repricing. I think a couple of points to make there is, firstly, obviously, it remains to be seen where gilt yields find their level, that so-called neutral rate, so to speak. And I think that will have a, a long way to go in terms of shaping overall sentiment. But I think the other point is we don't necessarily have to see gilt yields and property valuation yields really move one for one in lockstep as you might potentially expect to kind of protect that headroom or, or risk premium, if you will. You know, we have obviously since the GFC seen 
that headroom or risk premia be wider than it was um, historically before the global financial crisis. And so, yeah, there is no reason to actually, in our mind, why we can't actually settle at a level where that, that risk premium or, or headroom is you know, narrower than it has been over the last 10 to 12 years and actually sort of more in line with the, the longer run historical trend. Yeah, it's still going to be up 200, 250 basis points, but I don't necessarily think it, it needs to move one for one and completely reflect the rise in, in guilt yields that we've seen over, over the past six or seven months. Well, that's the thing we will all be looking out for, as you say. I guess my final question, actually, my final, final question is going to be, <laughs> we've seen some weakness in share prices over the last week or so um, in the property sector, particularly the industrials seem to have sold off a little bit. And uh, also, uh, I'm looking at supermarket income, impact healthcare, those kind of specialist vehicles. Is there any particular reason for that? Well, I think it was certainly a little bit of indigestion at the back end of last week in response to the Monetary Policy Committee rates decision again um, to increase interest rates again. I think it was last Thursday. And so there was definitely a little bit of, of indigestion there, given what we've spoken about in terms of, of rates and, and macro sentiment continuing to move share prices in the, in the listed property sector. And then I guess in the industrial peer group, you know, you've also seen Amazon sort of back in the headlines this week, I think it was over last weekend, in terms of their space take up in logistics space. And obviously that has a bearing on sentiment towards the, the industrial focus peers, given what we spoke about in terms of occupational market strength. But I think yeah, a key point to remember is that yeah, the occupational market for industrial property is deeper than, than Amazon, yeah, and it is, it is deeper than e-commerce, to be honest. So, you know, although it's easy to get fixated and, and hung up on headlines, potentially, and you, you see the news about Amazon scaling back space, and it's obviously not a positive read across for, for the sector, I wouldn't necessarily throw the, the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, when, you, when headlines like that get thrown about. So that was Andrew Rees, property analyst at Numis Securities, taking us through this week's news from the property sector and uh, making some pointers to where we might be going in the future. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.